Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Thanks so much for your feedback in terms of ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms. It really is useful for helping us reach new audiences. Today we're talking all about lipids with Dr. Susan Connolly from Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. Susan previously also worked at Imperial College London, where she runs the Lipid Clinic. Uh, We have a discussion all about primary and secondary prevention, including, towards the end of the podcast, a chat about the drugs that are in the pipeline that may revolutionise the whole face of lipid management. Please stay tuned to the end, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Susan, perhaps we can start off by you telling me who you are and where you work. Uh, Good morning, James. So, I'm a consultant cardiologist in the Western Health and Social Care Trust in Northern Ireland, uh, and I'm based in Enniskillen. And my self-specialist interest is preventive cardiology, and I run a cardiovascular risk clinic here, and I also direct the Trust's Cardiovascular Prevention and Rehabilitation Programme. Uh, Prior to this, I worked in Imperial, uh, and I moved to Northern Ireland three years ago, and the programme I developed in Imperial, the prevention programme, I brought to Northern Ireland. Brilliant. Uh, Thank you. And thank you, Susan, for taking the time to join me today. Perhaps we can start off by talking about primary prevention in terms of lipids. This is an area that perhaps the average cardiologist doesn't think that they need to get involved with. But in fact, in your recent talk for the British Junior Cardiology Association, you say that this isn't true. And of course, we're all seeing primary prevention patients whenever we do chest pain clinics or general clinics or on coronary care. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and when I did my cardiovascular risk clinic in London, I made always made sure I was a trainee there. And it always struck me what was how poor their knowledge of primary prevention was. And I think it's something that's really lacking in our curriculum for trainees. And as you said, in general cardiology clinics, we see patients all the time who don't have established cardiovascular disease. And we may see them for reasons such as palpitations or high blood pressure. But I think whenever you see a patient, you should always think about what's their cardiovascular risk? Is there anything I can do to modify it? And the best way to assess somebody's cardiovascular risk is to use a risk calculator. And what's the risk calculator that's recommended in the UK? So uh, JBS3 switched to QRISC when it was published in 2014. And QRISC3 is now available um, and both are freely available if you if you just Google them. Um, I like JBS the, the interface for JBS3 better. Mm. Um, it is more patient-friendly, and you could very easily show the risk, uh, dialing up the risk or dialing down the risk and the changes they make. QRIS3, though, probably is more accurate because it has modifiers in it, such as erectile dysfunction, Uh, mental ill health, steroid use, rheumatoid arthritis, and so on. One thing that struck me when you were discussing primary prevention in your recent talk was that the the need for a fasting lipid sample has has disappeared from the guidelines. Can you you talk about the rationale for that change? Yeah, so um, one thing I think that is frequently not understood is that uh, LDL cholesterol is not typically directly measured in UK hospitals, it's calculated and it's using the Friedwald formula and your LDL cholesterol using that formula is your total cholesterol minus your HDL minus your triglycerides divided by 2.2. 
Now, we know that eating puts up your triglycerides, so it was always assumed that it would be more accurate to use a fasting sample when your triglycerides would be lower. And the higher triglycerides go, the more likely you are to underestimate the LDL cholesterol. But actually, recent systematic reviews have shown the difference between fasting and non-fasting in the vast majority of us is negligible. The triglycerides are higher by about 0.3. So it won't make a real difference to the lipid profile. Where you could get caught out is somebody who has very high triglycerides, and it may be worth fasting then. But for the vast majority of our patients, non-fasting, it's a lot easier for them without having to come in fasting. And it means when they come into coronary care, for whatever reason, it can be sent with the initial troponin rather than fasting them the next morning. And as you emphasize many times, you're treating the risk, which is something that these equations, the, the risk equations spit out rather than the cholesterol level. And age is a major driver, isn't it, of that risk? Absolutely. So, I mean, if you see a young female, no matter what their risk factors are, if they're a 40-year-old female, their absolute risk is always going to be low. Uh, whereas your average 70-year-old man, even with very average risk factors, his risk is going to be usually high based on his age and his gender. Um, the reason we advocate a multifactorial risk approach uh, to um, assessing risk and using statins is because if you just look at individual risk factors, you will not estimate the risk correctly. Take, for example, a six-year-old woman with a high total, typical total, uh, total cholesterol of 6.57 postmenopausal but she will often have a relatively high HDL cholesterol. And if you just look at that total cholesterol and put her on a statin, that's probably the wrong thing to do because her absolute risk is probably very low if her other risk factors are good. Mm. But then if you have a 55-year-old man in your clinic and he's a current smoker, but he's got a lower than average cholesterol and a normal blood pressure, you might think, well, actually, he's fine, but he's not because he's a 55-year-old smoking male. His risk is going to cross the 10% threshold, the 10-year risk where statins will be of benefit. So rather than being subjective in your risk assessment, it's better to use the risk calculator and get an objective measure of risk. Because you get most bang for your buck when you direct your preventive therapies to those at higher risk. And as you alluded to there, so we're working on a 10-year risk of greater than 10%, at least in the UK at the moment in, in 2020, as triggering a, a statin prescription, right? Well, not quite triggering a prescription. It's Okay, it's, sorry. My fault. No, no. Well, <laughs> technically you're right, but it's supposed to be shared decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. So you're supposed to have a quite a, a conversation with the patient rather than saying, I think you should take. And yeah. actually, the individual benefit for that patient is very modest. Mm. Uh, but there is no doubt widespread uh, prescription of statin therapy has reduced uh, cardiovascular risk in the UK. Um, so, yeah, have the conversation with the patient. And actually, there is a nice uh, decision making tool to help you do that. And there is some talk in the guidelines, particularly in the US guidelines, that something called lifetime risk might uh, be more prominent in future editions. Is there any 
Is that of any use in, in, and in which kind of patient might you consider doing a lifetime risk assessment rather than limiting it to a 10-year assessment? Yeah, so that's where the JBS3 interface is particularly good. Um, I was on the JBS3 writing group and we were the first ones to bring in lifetime risk in the UK. Um, if you're young or if you're female, um, as I said before, no matter what your risk factors are, you're going to come out at low risk uh, as age is such a big driver of risk as being male. Um but although your tenure risk might be low, you're going to be at substantially higher risk over the course of, a life, of, of your lifetime. So what JBS3 did was they brought in, rather than telling someone their lifetime risk, because if you tell somebody, well, by the age of 80, there's a 70% chance, 70% chance you're going to have a heart attack. Mm. It's not going to mean a huge amount <laughs> when you're 35, 40. You think, well, that's years away. Mm. So what they did was instead of lifetime risk, but using the same parameter, was introduced heart age. Okay. So the heart age, your heart age is the risk of somebody um, who has uh, perfect risk factors. So, for example, a 40-year-old woman who is obese, who's got a suboptimal blood pressure and who smokes, if you calculate her 10-year risk, it's going to be 1% or 2%. And that's not going to motivate her to change. But if you calculate her heart age, it'll probably come out as the risk of a 50-year-old woman or a 55-year-old woman with optimal risk factors. And then you could show her that her heart age is 55. Mm. Um, and that makes a difference. And it's been shown in studies to be emotionally impactful. Now, <laughs> cardiologists aren't renowned for talking about their emotions, but actually this stuff is important because if the patient doesn't get their risk, they won't change and yeah. they won't take yeah. the drugs. Yeah. So um, being getting their risk is the bigger biggest mediator of change. So heart age is good, but what heart age is not to be used for is to just to decide when to prescribe statin therapy. Heart age should be used for encouraging lifestyle change. And once you've had a discussion with your patient and you've made together the decision that a statin therapy should be started, at least in the UK, it's fairly simple, isn't it, in terms of what's recommended? It's fantastic. I mean, the NICE guidance is so clear and simple. And you start atorvastatin 20. And the reason atorvastatin 20, uh, the, that dose was picked, is you get a very nice reduction in LDL and non-HDL cholesterol. Um, but you don't, uh, you're less likely to get the side effects associated with the higher dose. So it, 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 it's, it's has good acceptability. And is there any target you're aiming for? Is it simply start the start the medication and try and ensure the best compliance you can and and then reassess well, in a few years? I, I, yeah, I don't think it should be fire and forget. And certainly NICE suggests you should have a 40% reduction in non-HDL cholesterol, okay. which is simply your total cholesterol minus your HDL. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's important always to do a follow-up lipid profile for several reasons. One, you can see if they're not taking it because their cholesterol won't have budged. Um, and patients will, you know, 
<laughs> lie. Mm. Um, mm. And they're not, not being deliberately bad, but they just don't want to admit they're not taking it. Yeah, um, And then some patients genuinely will be taking it, but they may not respond that well. So a and 20 milligrams should give you about a 40% reduction, but you will get patients who only get a 20% reduction. Um, and then it may be worth trying them on a different statin. So I would always advocate doing a follow-up lipid profile. One other area that you explored uh, recently when I heard you talk was the use of imaging tests to refine risks in, in certain subgroups of patients where you're not quite sure uh, whether a statin is appropriate or not. Can you talk a little bit about that, particularly calcium scoring and, and where it fits in the latest guidelines? Yeah, so it's not in the UK guidelines, but in the most recent dyslipidemia guidelines from the ESC, it gets a 2B indication. Um, and originally, I wasn't a fan of calcium scoring, but my position on it has very much changed in the past few years. And I think it is actually a great test. And there is good data now from MISA hmm. uh, to, sh to show to, in comparison to all the other parameters, such as family history, um, CIMT, that it's a better, it's the best predictor of risk. Um, so evidence of calcification in the arteries is obviously synonymous with plaque. Now, the converse isn't true. true. You can have a zero calcium score and still have non-calcified plaque. Yeah. But it is a very good predictor of risk. And I tend to use in patients where I'm worried I'm being caught out. So, for example, if I saw somebody whose two brothers have cardiovascular disease and you calculate their Q risk and it's coming out at 8%, but you just don't quite believe it because it's also important to remember the Q risk is derived from the UK GP database and it's an average. It's not necessarily that particular patient's true risk. Sure. Um, so that's where I would use a calcium score where, where I'm concerned about the family history. Another place I use it is in my postmenopausal females who have extraordinarily high HDL cholesterols, uh, like 2.5. Yeah. And if you calculate their curis, because you use the total to HDL ratio, they're going to come out with a very low risk. But the evidence for HDL uh, cholesterol being protective, once it goes above two, really disappears. And you can get dysfunctional HDL. And I've had quite a few patients now who've had very high HDLs and, you know, their Q-risk is very low, but you do a calcium score and they have plaque. So they'd be two of the examples. The other group is patients who really don't want to take statins, but you really know they should be on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're telling them a risk score, but they're just not getting it. So I tend to bring them in for a calcium score because it's such an easy test to do. Very small radiation dose, literally takes three minutes. Yeah. And then I see them in clinic and I show them the calcium in their arteries. And that is very motivating. And that's been shown in studies to mediate change. And they're more accepting of taking a statin because I talk about controlling the plaque that's there. And when you do a calcium score, are you simply looking for a non-zero score or are you using the age and gender scale appropriate to that patient and seeing if they're greater than that you would expect them to be? Or does well, it depend? That's, that's, that's a really good question. So 
Technically, it's the absolute number will dictate their short to medium term risk. Mm. So greater than 100 is the cutoff really where they'll benefit from statin therapy. Greater than 400 is equivalent to a 10 year risk of 20%. Right. Um, But the age gender cutoffs for me remain particularly important. For example, if I have a 50 year old female, say, whose brother had a myocardial infarction and she's perimenopausal, average risk factors, you know, her risk of cardiovascular disease should be very low and she should have a calcium score of zero. But say her calcium score is 12 or 14, it's still very low, but mm. for her age and gender, it's very high. Yeah. Now, her absolute risk in the short term is still relatively low, but it makes me nervous that she's developed plaque. And I think there's a good argument there for having the discussion around statin therapy, because then they can maintain uh, the the atheroma at the level it is or even regress it and certainly prevent it progressing. And they've also got a long time, hopefully, before, you know, a long time of available treatment years, as it were, to try to change the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a win-win. I mean, statins are cheap and they work. And just finally, on primary prevention, you talked about things that we shouldn't miss as non-expert in lipid management, and that includes things like familial hypercholesterolemia. What what would be a, a, a trigger or a warning sign that a patient in the primary prevention clinic might uh, have FH? So there's two things to look for. One is the total cholesterol level being greater than 7.5. That is a red flag. And two is a family history of premature disease. And the younger, the first degree relative, the higher your suspicion should go up if their total cholesterol is high. Um, So a total cholesterol greater than 7.5 or a total cholesterol greater than 9 in somebody who doesn't have a family history. Now, this is where total cholesterols aren't as useful, though, and you have to look at the rest of the parameters because I get referred patients in my risk clinic, query FH from GPs, but actually their triglycerides are 4 or 5, and that is not FH. Hmm. That is a mixed dyslipidemia, likely a familial combined and genetic testing is not indicated. So you really want it to, to be a disorder of LDL. So their total cholesterol is high and their LDL is high and their triglycerides are, should be normal or only mildly up. Got you. And that's the kind of patient that you'd like to see in a, a specialist lipid clinic? Well, yeah. So what we do, I mean, there's quite a lot of those patients around and the vast majority of them won't have FH. They'll have what's called polygenic hypercholesterolemia, which will increase their risk, but not the same as that of FH. And you don't have to do a genetic test. What you want to pull out is the people who have possible FH. And that's why we have um, scoring criteria And in Northern Ireland, we use the Dutch Lipid uh, Clinic Network criteria, as we do in the rest of the UK. And if you have a score of six or greater, it's recommended they're seen the specialist clinic because genetic testing is likely to be of some value. If the score is lower than that, the pickup is very low. Okay, so it's a very useful measure for uh, refining the use of genetic testing and not making it so scattergun. Now, that makes sense. Yeah. Can we move on to secondary prevention, Dr. Connolly? Um, what do the latest secondary prevention guidelines tell us from the ESC 
nice, etc. In terms of um, the the class of medication and the dose of medication that we should be using these days. So yeah, so nice came out in two thousand, and I was getting mixed up thirteen or fourteen, and it was quite revolutionary in that it didn't recommend an LDL target, um, and it just advocated a torvastatin high intensity eighty milligrams, and actually. I think that was a good idea. It really simplified things for uh, cardiologists and hospital. Just everybody who came in, you put them on a torvastatin 80. The ESC guidelines in 2019 have introduced a lower target. The NICE guidelines didn't have an LDL target. They also advocated a reduction in non-HDL cholesterol of 40%. But the ESC guidelines have brought in an LDL target of 1.4, which has gone down from the previous target. And that is because um, the latest iteration of the guidelines have the more recent studies to show that the lower you go, the lower the cardiovascular risk. And certainly the um, improved study with ezetimibe, um, a very large study, which was conducted over a very long time period, it had very modest results. Um, the difference between the treatment arm and the placebo arm was about 0.4 millimoles per litre. And those in the ezetimibe treated arm achieved an LDL cholesterol of 1.4 on average. But it reduced cardiovascular risk, that that difference. Now, not death. And that was something the trial was criticized for. But it's easy to forget that the meta-analysis of higher intensity statins versus moderate intensity also did not reduce cardiovascular death. It reduced cardiovascular events. And if you talk to patients, they are equally as interested in not having another heart attack Mm. as not dying. So it's a relevant, (laughs) it's a relevant endpoint to patients. So 1.4 is a whole new ballgame in achieving. Um, And it's quite hard to achieve, isn't it? In your your talk, you talked about the percentage of patients that achieve that on, let's say, statin alone or achieve it with the addition of azetamibe or another class we're going to talk about in a second, PCSK9. Can you just run over those figures if you have them to hand? And if you don't, I have them in front of me. So I think they came with the the sweetheart study. Yeah, the Sweetheart study, which is, I think, the biggest registry of post-MI patients, did some modelling. I think they've got 25,000 patients in their registry. And they modelled that if you used high-intensity statin monotherapy, 20% of your post-MI patients will get to an LDL cholesterol of less than 1.4. And I would very much agree with that. And that's assuming people are adherent and tolerant and and tolerating the drug and so on. Mm. Um, if you bring in azetamibe, you'll get 50% of your population, your coronary population to target. Uh, so there's a big gap there if you if you don't use something beyond azetamibe. Yeah. And really, the, the trials, all the trials of the PCSK9 inhibitors, which I know we're coming back to, and all the newer drugs um, show a very low azetamibe use. And even Eurospire 5, which is a very large cross-sectional survey conducted in 2018 showed the azetamibe use in Europe is extremely low, less than 10%, which I don't really understand. I think it's a great drug. And what we've done now here in Northern Ireland, particularly with COVID, um, 
because the ESC recommend a stepwise approach. You start the statin, you bring them back in six weeks, and then you up titrate or you add in azetamide. What we're doing with our certainly our younger patients is we're just giving them all high intensity statin therapy and, and azetamide. Okay, from the get go, yeah. From the get go, yeah. Okay, I mean that makes sense, doesn't it? Because as you say, it's particularly during COVID, we haven't got the time or the space in clinic to be necessarily titrating every patient on an individual level as we would like to. It's Absolutely, a pr- a pragmatic yeah. And, and the GPs don't have the time either to be doing their bloods. Yeah. Um, and even if their LDL goes down to one, well, so what? Because we know the lower it goes, the better it is. Yeah. Now, I would obviously, I don't do it in my 80 year olds or my 85 year olds. Um, but, you know, a 75 year old with type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, they're ve- at very high recurrent risk. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about PCSK9. So in your talk, you were saying they're generally given once every two weeks. Patients really like them because there's no tablets. Um, what do you think of this class of drug? And do you think it's likely to be more used in the in the future? So I, yeah, PCSK9 inhibitors, I've been using them now about four years, four or five years. Mm. And they are fabulous drugs. Um, because they're a monoclonal antibody to PCSK9, which is in the pathway for lipid regulation, they are virtually clean of side effects. Um, And patients love them because they're clean of side effects and because they only have to give them to themselves every two weeks. And they come in a pre-filled pen, subcutaneous injection, so they're very easy. Um, And they work. Without a doubt. And I remember when I was in Imperial, we were the coordinators for the UK, the European arm of the trial. And you could all you always knew in clinic who was in the treatment arm <laughs> of the PCSK9, although you couldn't tell them because no, they're course. LDLs. You were seeing LDL cholesterols that you never saw before, 0.9, 0.8. Yeah. Um, so there's no doubt they work. Um, but the downside is their cost. Um, if you know, they're, the list price is about between 250 and 300 pounds a month. Now, I know the NHS gets them for less than that. Mm. But that's why the NICE criteria are so tight, because that's based on cost effectiveness. But you have to have an LDL cholesterol of greater than 3.5 to get a PCSK9 inhibitor. Now, if you think the average LDL cholesterol in the UK is 3.2, most people can tolerate a statin, even if it's only once a week or intermittent dosing. Yeah. And then you bring in azetamide. You have very few patients who have LDL cholesterols greater than 3.5. And it's really only your patients with FH, familial heterozygous hyperlipidemia. So although I love them and really like prescribing them, I don't get to prescribe a lot of them. But the guidelines in Europe, uh, are, are more liberal, aren't they, in terms of being able to use them more often for secondary prevention patients on on a statin and azetamibe already? Yes, but they did acknowledge they had not done a cost effectiveness analysis, and it's what your country allows. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't think a lot of countries are going to let people prescribe them willy nilly. And sorry, I work now in Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland recently brought in their guidelines, and they're even tighter. You have to have an LDL cholesterol of four. Gosh, okay. So yeah, as you say, very, very few patients, if they're already taking a statin plus azetamide, uh, are going to be at that level, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, And 
we will talk about statin intolerance another time, but just quickly, you did have a couple of really interesting approaches to to trying to get a small dose of statin or a less frequent dose into patients with statin intolerance. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, once a week and how effective that might be? Yeah, so the vast majority of statin intolerance is, is perceived. We know that, placebo effect. Um, but you've got to work with the patient and it's no point telling them they're imagining it because that won't go down well. <laughs> Uh, and yet, you know, you have to gain their trust and look like you're listening, even though inside you're probably having an internal scream. Um, and there are a genuine small proportion of patients who who don't tolerate them. Yeah. So what I normally do is reduce the dose. And resuvastatin is very long acting. It is a half-life of 24 hours. So you can give resuvastatin even once a week. Now, it lower LDL cholesterol by about 17%, which you think, well, that's not great. But actually, if they even just take that once a week and they take azetamibe every day, which is very well tolerated, that's a 30% reduction in LDL cholesterol or a bit more, which is the same as moderate intensity statin therapy, which is not too bad. And they'll get benefit. And usually if you get them on five once a week, then you've sort of won their trust and you can increase it. That's really interesting. I had no idea. That would be my approach. Yeah, no idea that such a... A, you know a small dose once a week would have such a profound effect yeah uh, that's great to, great to hear and finally should we talk about the exciting new drugs which are not yet available but look like they will be available in the next few years do you want to start off with benpidoic acid or enclisiran i'll let you choose um why don't we start with benpidoic acid um so when, when this came out first, I was a little underwhelmed. Um, and actually, I, I was being like the azetamide naysayers. I thought, well, it's about an 18% reduction. So benpidoic acid works on the same pathway as statins. It works upstream. It's an ATP citrate lyase inhibitor. Um, but unlike statins, it has to be activated in the liver. So it's a prodrug. Uh, which means it doesn't affect skeletal muscle cells. And um, so there's no muscle side effects at all. Now, the lipid lowering effect is more modest. And as I said, it's about 16 to 18%. But actually what the company have done, which I think is quite clever, is they've created a combination with azetamibe. Um, now, I always get the two of them mixed up, Nistendi and Nalemdo. They sound like they're Swahili. Uh, <laughs> one is a combination with azetamibe and one is benpidoic acid on its own. And I think that's something we have to particularly be mindful of. There are more and more drugs now for prevention in patients. Mm. Uh, we've got low-dose uh, rivaroxaban. We have the SGL2 inhibitors. We have our dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, we have azetamide, and there's only so many drugs patients will take. Um, and when I see patients post-event, the first thing they say to me is, what can I stop? Right. They yeah. never say to me, what extra drug can I take to reduce my risk? And it's a whole other conversation. And you can see sort of the dismay in their eyes as they realize they have to take more, not less. So I'm delighted there's a combination. Um, and actually, I think if you use the combination with high-intensity statin therapy, I, I, I haven't seen any modeling, but you'll probably get, if you think high-intensity statin therapy and azetamide will get 50% to target, then if you use high-intensity statin therapy and the benpidoic azetamide combination, you're probably going to get three quarters to target. And, and that's pretty impressive, actually. 
And finally, in clizaran, uh, I know it's a drug you're very excited about. Yeah, so in clizaran has had its first step uh, in approval uh, in the EU, and the full EU approval is expected. Um, and it it acts on PCSK9 just like the inhibitors, but it inhibits the expression of PCSK9. It's a silencing RNA, and it's an injection like the monoclonal antibodies, but the big difference is the dosing frequency. And in the Orion phase three trials, it was given at day zero, three months, and then every six months. And that to me is a complete groundbreaker uh, in talking about adherence, because that's the big problem mm. um, in, in achieving LDL targets. It's patient adherence. Right. Um, right. uh, Which is complex and has multiple reasons for poor adherence. And if you had a drug that only had to be given every six months, then there is no reason you couldn't have a healthcare professional giving that drug and have clinics for it. Um, And I have no doubt if that's the way it was done, it would be cost effective because then you'd know that they had LDL cholesterol levels 50% lower after getting the drug, which is quite remarkable. And like the monoclonal antibodies, because it's very gene specific, it is very clean of side effects also, except for injection site side effects, which you get with any any drug you inject. Um, We have um, some evidence of efficacy in reducing cardiovascular risk, but we need the outcome study, um, Orion 4, and that should be available in 2024, I think. And, okay. and then again, it comes down to the price. How much are they going to cost? And I have no idea. Um, they'll have to, if they come in lower, substantially lower than PCSK9, well, that would be the, the game changer, I think. And then are shown in Orion 4 to reduce events. And in the other Orion suite of trials, the earlier trials, what, what sort of bang for your buck are you getting in terms of LDL reduction? 50%, okay. 50%. So in practically the same as the monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very significant um, uh, change really, isn't it, potentially? Every six months. I mean, that's just astonishing. Yeah, um, and if you use those with PCSK9, inhib- sorry, with statin therapy, you're going to get virtually all your patients to their LDL target, which would be just amazing. Fantastic, wouldn't it? Finally, uh, Susan, do you have any takeaway points that uh, the trainees and the non-lipid experts listening uh, might be able to go away and put into practice? Yeah, so don't fast your patients. Don't just look at the total cholesterol because you won't get the whole story. Look at the LDL, the triglycerides, the non-HDL cholesterol. Think of secondary hypercholesterolemia. Always make sure you check the thyroid function um, as hypothyroidism will put up put up the lipids and giving a statin to somebody with hypothyroidism will give them statin myopathy. Um, in secondary prevention, just looking at the drug list and seeing somebody is on a torvastatin 4080 is not enough. Just do their lipid profile while you have them in front of you because they may not be taking it or they may not be responding to it. And bring in azetamibe. It's a great drug, well tolerated and bring it in early. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Connolly, for your time today. It was an excellent discussion. And um, I look forward to perhaps getting you back on the podcast when some of these newer drugs come to market. Great, James. I enjoyed it. As you can see, lipids are very close to my heart. (laughs) Indeed. Thanks so much. (laughs) 